Well, uh, good morning. How are you guys doing? Oh, great. Awesome. Good to hear. Are you guys digging this weather? Oh, man, it is so legit. I'm not even kidding. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning, for being here. Hope you grab some coffee on the way in. Uh, we're going to find ourselves this morning in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. While you open or load your Bible, uh, I'll say a couple of things. If you're new, we got some Connect cards on the chairs there before you. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket or in the back Connect area. We'd love to hang out with you and answer questions or just hang out. Uh, and in addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, there should be several on the rows uh, uh, where you're sitting. And so that is our gift to you. Uh, please take one, excuse me, with you. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in a uh, sermon series called Glory, the person and work of Jesus. And so for us, what we wanted to do was focus in on several uh, areas of the life and ministry of Jesus uh, in hopes that we would grow to understand him more and that understanding would lead us to worship Jesus, that it would ultimately lead us to be transformed by Jesus and that we would be obedient to Jesus. And so we've walked through several topics over the past couple of weeks. Uh, for instance, we have walked through, excuse me, we have walked through uh, Jesus's uh, God. We looked at uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. Then we looked at the, the, the prayer life of Jesus. Then we looked at Jesus as teacher. And we're looking at just several things, again, uh, that, that, that uh, stem from his life and ministry here on on earth. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus restoring, or that the fact that Jesus is the one that restores. And so we're going to be in John chapter 1, or excuse me, 21. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read that, that scripture at length. Uh, it is a big piece of scripture, but like our, uh, like our time for the past couple of weeks, uh, that is really going to serve as a launching pad for several more uh, verses in Scripture. Uh, we are going to come back to John 21, uh, but that won't be until later. And so uh, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Again, glad that you guys are here with us this morning. This is John uh, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, excuse me, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that not night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This section will be our focal point for today. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter responded, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let's pray. God, my simple prayer this morning is that you would be glorified. God, I pray for the hearts and affections of, uh, of, of my brothers and sisters and friends that are gathered here. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would not just be among us, but be present at work in us, convicting and challenging our hearts. Convicting and challenging our hearts to fix our eyes on Jesus, and convicting and challenging our hearts to receive your word. God, I pray that as we look to restoration, again, that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus and Jesus alone for our good and your glory. God, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to give you a little bit of context of what's happening in John 21, and then I'm going to do some more rambling, uh, because apparently I do that a lot. So, so here we go. In John 21, at this point, Jesus is already raised from the dead. He has resurrected. Jesus has resurrected. He has appeared to the disciples uh, on several occasions already, this now being, I believe, the third time. And so as he appears to them, the disciples are out fishing. They're kind of waiting trying to figure out like what's going to happen next. And Jesus appears to them on the shore and he tells them about casting the net on the right side. And then uh, a bunch of fish uh, get caught and they come to the shore where Jesus is at and enters Peter, right? And, and we see that Jesus has breakfast with the disciples. He's hanging out with them. He has a good meal with them. He says, man, I've, I've had some stuff prepared for y'all. And then the, the crux, the focal point of our time today is verses 15 to 17, where after breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter and wants to have a one-on-one. And he wants to have a one-on-one with Peter in light of what Peter just did several days before where Peter denied Jesus three times after Jesus told him that he would deny him. 
If you guys remember, if we go back just a little bit, uh, they were at the Last Supper, and and Peter said, you know, what's going to happen? I'm never going to let anything happen to you. I'm going to fight for you to the death. And then Jesus replies, uh, oh, Peter, you're going to be betraying me three times. And then Jesus is falsely accused and arrested, and then he is standing in trial. And what we see is Peter deny him three times. And in Luke's account of that time, what we see is that the third time that Peter denies Christ, their eyes meet. And scripture says that Peter turned and wept bitterly because he realized what he had just done. And so we fast forward to John 21. Jesus is on the beach. He has breakfast with his boys, and then he goes on to have a one-on-one with Peter. And this section is known as Peter's Restoration. And so I want to talk a little bit about restoration. I actually want to talk a lot about restoration in our time this morning. See, the reason I want to talk about restoration is because I believe there's, there is a lie that says things are the way they ought to be. And, And that's just not true. And so if we're going to better understand restoration, if we are going to better understand why we need to be restored to Christ, we actually need to go back to the beginning in Genesis 3. See, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, and so what happened was corruption and sin entered into creation and as a result separated them, which separates us from God. And as image bearers, our relationship with God is now distorted. Our image, or excuse me, our relationship with God is now distorted because of sin and corruption. And so rather than being a reflection of God's character, rather than being a reflection of God's glory, our hearts are now enslaved to our desires. Put it differently, we are not only born into sin, we are enslaved to our sin. But God already had a plan, a rescue mission to restore all things through his son, Jesus, who lived the life that you and I cannot live and died the sinner's death on the cross. One of the things that we must understand in lieu of that is that sin requires payment, and the payment is blood, or the payment is death. And Jesus took it upon himself. And so we listen to the narrative, the work, and the story of Christ, and particularly as Christians, we rehearse it in our mind and say it over again. We might even write it down in our journals. We might reread it several times throughout our time uh, of devotion, and there's something that still is very discouraging. We continue to sin. We continue to sin over and over and over again, and we continue to feel defeated or even feel discouraged uh, or even feel like we're lost and completely separated still from God, although we completely have committed ourselves to him. We do the things we shouldn't do and the things that we ought to do, we don't. And so there's this tension that we have oftentimes as, as Christians. Man, I am continuing to let Jesus down. And so, as a result, there tend to be two giant lies that Christians will embrace. There are two giant lies. The first one is that we must do enough in order to work or earn or return into the grace of God. 
This is the lie that says uh, when you've dropped the ball again, when you've let Jesus down again, when you have failed again and again, this is the lie that says I just need to do stuff, really good stuff, in order to work my way back into his graces. If I just do enough, he's going to see that, therefore he's going to accept me, then I think I'll be okay. That's the first lie. And the reason it's a lie is because what we're doing in that moment is we adopt a philosophy of salvation by works. Now, if you're new, here's what I would say about that. That we are, Christians are, saved by works. It's just not yours. It's the work of Christ. And so this is one of the first lies that Christians buy into. You failed again. You dropped the ball again. You failed Christ again. Man, nothing's really happening. Nothing's really changing. I just need to do more stuff, and then he'll be okay with me. And you defeat the purpose of the gospel. The second lie is that we fear rejection. That we've done too much. That we are too dirty. That we are too guilty for Christ to even want us. And as a result, we fear rejection. He is just waiting to hit the eject button. He's not going to want me. He's not going to want to have me. I can't be with him. And so you fear rejection. You fear rejection and so you're covered with guilt and shame. And both of these are epic lies and we still need restoration. We still need restoration. Jesus brings that to us. Jesus brings restoration to us. So I want to I want to briefly answer the question, how does Jesus restore us? And so we're going to look at six things. And we could look at more but we're not. So we're going to look at six. How does Jesus restore us? The first way is that Jesus restores us by coming to us. This is John chapter one, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the son, the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus restores us by entering into human history. God enters into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. And what that tells us is not only does he initiate salvation, but he initiates restoration. He set aside his deity, enters into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, and meets us where we're at. And that is an echo of what we see in the garden in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, God comes to them. He is the one that comes to them. He calls Adam. Adam, where are you? What have you done? We see that God meets us where we're at. It doesn't say you've done these. Now you have to pass this standardized test. And if you score high enough, maybe we'll have a relationship. What he does is he initiates salvation and restoration and a relationship by coming to us, meeting us where we are at. That is the first way upon which or how Jesus restores us. The second one is that Jesus restores us through the crucifixion. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 
He writes, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Elsewhere, Paul in Romans writes that while we were still sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. That word propitiation is a really good word to know. It's a really good word to know. Sometimes it seems a little intimidating, but it's not. And I would encourage you to wrap your uh, uh, brain, wrap your heart around it. And propitiation teaches that not only did Jesus pay for our sins on the cross, in other words, not only did Jesus die on the cross paying the penalty for our sin, removing the separation from the the sinner has with God, but he also satisfies the wrath of God. Oftentimes, Christians only remember half of his work. That on the cross, Jesus died paying for our sin with his death on our behalf. And that is very true. If we're going to get a little nerdy, that half is called expiation. The full work of Jesus on the cross is not only did he pay for our sin with blood, but he also satisfied the wrath of God. And when we begin to talk about grace, sometimes we water grace down. And the best way to understand grace is knowing what we have been saved from first. We have been saved from the wrath of God on behalf of Christ's death on the cross for the sinner. Propitiation is a big deal for the Christian. When we have a full understanding of that work, we keep Christ's work on the cross from being watered down. So Christ restores us through the crucifixion. Number three, Jesus restores us through his resurrection. I'll read 1 Corinthians at the end. But the resurrection of Christ was not only a gift of hope, but a declaration. A declaration of Christ's obedience. Something Adam could not do. Jesus conquered death, Satan, and sin. He conquered Satan, death, and sin. And for those who believe, and when I use the word believe, there's, there's intimacy that is involved there. It is not just knowing of God, it is knowing God. For those who believe, this means that they are set free. That death is merely a vehicle into glory. Death is merely a vehicle into glory. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. Paul writes, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That through the resurrection, Christ conquered Satan demons, hell, and sin. And as a result for the believer, you are set free. You are set free. Number four, Jesus restores through faith. Touching on the heart a little bit, perhaps you are filled with guilt. Maybe you're filled with shame. Maybe you're filled with fear. 
And yet Jesus calls you to himself as you are. And I know that's hard. I know that's really hard because even people in the church are going to tell you that you need to figure things out and that you need to look a certain way and that you need to do certain things if you're going to come to Jesus. But what we see throughout Scripture is that Jesus calls people to himself as they are. As they are, and he is the one that works. He is the one that works. And I know that that's hard, that just because you may understand faith doesn't mean that at times it's not scary. And so let's go to Mark chapter 3. This is verses 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. These are the Pharisees that are watching him. So that they may accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. I want to talk a couple of things about that. Particularly when it comes to the sinner being restored in the church, the church will judge that individual because they don't look like the church, they don't speak like the church, they don't meet certain requirements that have been legalized by the church even though they're unwritten and unspoken things. And so the church becomes Pharisees or becomes the Pharisees. That because someone doesn't fit this mold of what the church person is supposed to look like, or because they don't have the same experience that you had, all of a sudden the church begins to judge that individual. And even though the context here is not only restoration and the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a sermon for another day, what I am looking at is the fact that Jesus is grieved at their hardness of hearts because there's an individual who needs to be restored and they're more worried about the legality of what's going on rather than him being restored. And that is something that echoes in the walls of the church today. That's something that echoes in the walls of the church today. And so oftentimes, Christians will say, you need to do certain things. You need to look a certain way. You need to make sure this is in order. You need to make sure your finances are good if you're going to become a Christian, right? Uh, You need to make sure that you're here at 1030, not 1045, right? You need to make sure that you are a part of three community groups because the more community groups you're part of, the holier you get, Right? Uh, you, you need to make sure that, like, I've seen people at, 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 like, lunches and dinners, they start eating, and someone's like, whoa, we didn't pray. Like, this food is now damned. Like, that's not how it works, right? And so we become incredibly legalistic about these, uh, about so many different things, and we forget that particularly when we see Jesus restore a sinner to himself, instead of rejoicing, we're condemning, Instead of rejoicing, we are condemning. And so what we see Jesus do to this man who has a withered hand, he tells him to come to him. And you can 
kind of uh, contextualize some of this or think about some of the, like what's going on in the synagogue. There's this dude with a withered hand. Jesus says, come to me. And he's telling him to come to him. And there's all these people in the synagogue. The guy's embarrassed. The guy might have fear. The guy might have shame. Like, I am not going to show you my hand. And Jesus says, stretch it out. He says, stretch it out. And that might be some of you in the sense where he is calling you to himself. He is telling you to come to him. And he's saying, stretch out your hand. And you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm scared. I don't know if I should. And he says, stretch it out. And the guy stretched it out in faith. And is healed. He's restored. We see both. That Jesus can and does heal physically. But we also see that Jesus heals spiritually. He restores spiritually. We see that Jesus in that moment understands that even though that dude is full of fear, is also poor in spirit. He's emptied of his pride. What what does he have but guilt and shame? And Jesus tells him to stretch out his hand. So Jesus restores us through faith. The next one is that Jesus restores through brokenness. We're going to go back to John 21. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. This is verse 15 to 17. I'm going to reread it. I'm actually going to read it twice because we're going to nerd out in a little bit. So John 21, 15 to 17. Going back to the beach, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And finally, a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, who was already frustrated at this point, says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. The word for love that Jesus is using in this passage in the Greek is called agape which means unconditional love. Okay, you guys feel me on that? Unconditional love. The word for love that Peter uses in response to Jesus is called in the Greek, phileo, which uh, is defined as a friendly, brotherly affection. Right? Now, knowing that, put that into context. Let's go back briefly. John 21. So Jesus says to Peter, uh, Simon, son of John, do you unconditionally love me more than these? He's referring to the disciples. And Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I appreciate you. He asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you unconditionally love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I really, really like you. I think you're awesome. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he answers him a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agape, do you unconditionally love me? And Peter, who's frustrated, because the reason Peter's getting frustrated is because Jesus is poking at his heart. He knows what he's getting at. And so Peter is getting frustrated. And so he responds, yes, you know everything. You know that I do love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. When he says, feed my sheep, Peter breaks. Peter breaks. Because in spite of Peter, in spite of Peter's sin, Jesus is restoring him so that he would be used 
so that he would be used. And so when he says, feed my sheep, he's giving them his orders. He's giving them, hey, I'm, this is what you're going to do. I've not only restored you, this is what you're going to do. And in that moment, Peter is broken. Though John doesn't necessarily record it, we see even in the context, we see that Peter is broken because his response in that section of him getting frustrated is, I've done the worst thing I could ever do. And you're telling me that you have work for me? You're telling me that you have called me to yourself? I did the thing I said I wouldn't do. I looked at you in the eye and I said, I wouldn't do those things and I did them. And you're asking me if I love you? The thing I thought I had control over that wasn't continuing to corrupt me, the thing that I thought I defeated, I did it again last night or the day before or this morning and Christ is asking him, the main question that he asks you, do you love me? Do you love me? And it's a beautiful scene because, because Jesus is sitting down with Peter at the beach. They just had some breakfast, and he has a one-on-one. He singles Peter out, and he has this one-on-one. And the crux of that is, do you love me? That's it. Do you love me? And like Peter, you and I get frustrated We get frustrated at those kinds of questions because that means they're poking at our heart. They're poking at what's really tugging my strings. They're poking at uh, my idols. They're poking at the sin I don't want to talk about. They're poking at something I don't want to address. They're poking at something that, man, this is just going to go to the grave with me. And so they keep poking at that and poking at that, but they're poking at that not because they just want you to just cave, but because what we see happen to Peter is that in that moment of brokenness, God restores him and uses him. In that moment, Peter is poor in spirit. He is emptied of all pride. He has nothing. He has nothing in that moment. And what breaks him is the question, do you love me? So Christ restores his people through brokenness. Through brokenness. And finally, the last one. Jesus restores through grace. So, and it leads in from where we were just at. So on the beach, Jesus is having this conversation with Peter. Do you love me? The third time, Peter's frustrated. He says, feed my sheep. And then in verse 19, John writes, after he said all that, Christ told Peter, follow me. Follow me. The guy who on paper wasn't even supposed to be a part of the team anymore. He dropped the ball too many times. He was the epic failure. Jesus said, follow me follow me. In that moment, Jesus met Peter where he was at and gives him grace. That is unmerited favor from God to the sinner in spite of their sin. And he tells Peter, follow me. When you read through Acts and then First and Second Peter, and if you were to exclude Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would think that Peter is this powerhouse of an apostle. 
if you read uh, Acts 2 where he preaches that, that big old sermon and he quotes like four books in the Old Testament and he's just calling people to repent. They don't even let him finish. They are so grieved by their sin that they then ask Peter, what shall we do? And Peter says, brothers, repent. We read through Acts. We read through First and Second Peter. You would have never guessed that that was the same guy that Jesus is addressing on the beach in his brokenness, extending his grace. And he extends it by telling him, follow me. Restoration leads to repentance and rejoicing. It leads to repentance and rejoicing. If we had to break that down, that is that restoration is us fixing our eyes on Christ. Repentance is us changing direction, turning away from our sin, and rejoicing is living a lifestyle of repentance in restoration. It is, restoration is, is what leads us to repentance and to rejoicing. Additionally, restoration, and this is where we'll close, restoration is both sanctifying and salvific. It's both sanctifying and salvific. It's sanctifying for the Christian because you need to remember that you cannot out the grace of God. You cannot out the grace of God. Therefore, repent and be restored. Not so that you would be made new again, but so that you would remember that you've always belonged to Him. And if you don't know Jesus, restoration is salvific. It's salvific because what you need to know is that there is more power in the mercy of God than in your sin. And so repent, turn away from your sin, and turn to Christ. Find restoration in Him. The beautiful reminder for the Christian comes from John 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's a beautiful reminder for the Christian. And if you don't know Jesus, the reminder here of his work comes from Romans 5. For while we were still weak, and if you have a Bible, I would circle and highlight the word still. That's present tense. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We need to be restored. We need to be restored to be reminded that we belong to him and we have always belonged to him. And if you say, man, I'm going to fail again. Yes, you will fail again. And he restores you again and again and again and again. He restores you again and again, so combat the lies that say you need to work harder. You do need to work. There is work involved. I'm not going to lie. There is work involved. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the prince of preachers, said, don't fear death, fear life. That's really hard. (laughs) 
There's, there is work involved. But when we're talking about who we are and how we got to be who we are, it was based on work, just not yours. But the righteousness of another, the work of another, the obedience of another. And if you don't know Jesus, understand that you can come to know him. You can have restoration. He literally invites you to come to him. To come to him to find restoration. To have restoration. So that your eyes would be fixed on him. So that we would lead a life of repentance. And so that you would lead a life of joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this time where, where man, we, we get to be challenged by your word. We get to be convicted by your word. I think sometimes, uh, man, learning and hearing about your restoration is like uh, air to, um, it's like life to our dead bones. It's like air to our lungs. And God, we know that your word is true, and as a result, we need to be reminded that through the work of Christ, we have been restored. That through the work of Christ, no one can snatch us out of his hand. And that through the work of Christ, there's grace. Others need to know uh, through the Holy Spirit that through the work of Christ, there is mercy for them. There is mercy for them. That they don't need to be tied and enslaved to their sin. And so God, I just pray that you would be at work in us this morning. That as we begin to chew on some of the things from your word, that we would be a people who act upon it through repentance, through prayer, through confession of sin. God, as we walk into a time of tithes and offering. God, I pray that this would serve, that this would continue to serve as a time of worship where we give you our stuff, where it is a demonstration, a declaration of our transformation as a result of your work in us. God, may we be good stewards of these finances so that they would serve to expand your kingdom, so that they would serve to expand your gospel to those who don't know you, and so that they would serve to ultimately bring you glory, not ourselves. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.